For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia. I'm Will Kingston. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that one of our guiding principles is to discuss points of view that are underexpressed, unpopular, or downright dangerous. These views should be debated, they should be discussed, they should be examined, they should be condemned if appropriate. The one thing they absolutely should not be is silenced. Unfortunately, the default setting for most of the Western media is to stifle dissenting viewpoints as opposed to discussing them. It's perhaps no surprise then that I so thoroughly enjoyed the book Abominations, Selected Essays from a Career Courting Self-Destruction. The essays are bound together by a common theme. After publication, they brought hell and damnation down on the author's head. That author is Lionel Schreiber. Lionel has written 17 books, of which 15 are novels, the most well-known being We Need to Talk About Kevin, which won the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2005. Her non-fiction commentary has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Economist, and most prestigiously, of course, The Spectator. Lionel, welcome to Australiana. Hi. I've cherry-picked some quotes from Abominations that I particularly liked to act as starters for discussion. I'll start with how you described your political ideology, and you said, during the nine months of the year I live in London, I'm regarded as an arch-conservative nut. When I fly home to the US, I transform mid-Atlantic to a leftist radical with the same opinions. What do you think that says about both countries? Well, first off, I would probably have to update that summary because since I wrote it, politics have transformed considerably in the United States. But I think I was trying to explain that the center of gravity in the UK has for some time now been to the left of where the center is in the United States. So the conservative party, that is capital C conservative in the UK, has in majority swallowed the whole woke basket of opinions. They go on about trans rights and microaggressions along with the best of them. And then there are certain crucial issues in the U.S. that are still a matter of debate that aren't simply settled in the U.K. For example, abortion, you know, it's just not a talking point. National Health Service is is accepted as, you know, it's going to stay. So there's no battle against socialized medicine in the U.K. So just in general, they're 
they tend to be more left-wing. And that actually leaves a, a lot of voters out in the cold, particularly on the issue of immigration, because there is no party that really wants to cut down on mass immigration, and there's nobody mm. to vote for. We'll get to immigration. It's on my list. But just before we do, I want to talk about those neglected voters that you just mentioned. You've called yourself a libertarian in the past. I would consider myself a libertarian. And I think most people, even if they don't, or many people, even if they didn't use the word, they'd probably consider themselves broadly socially moderate to progressive and broadly economically liberal in that stratosphere. And yet at the same time, libertarianism has never really taken off at the ballot box in Western democracies. Why is that the case? Well, I think as a term, it's widely misunderstood. Most people don't get what it means. And furthermore, it's been... uh, it's been recategorized in recent years as some kind of far-right ideology, which is absurd. I think libertarianism essentially comes down to you should be allowed to do whatever you want as long as it's not hurting other people and it's not infringing on other people's rights. It's a simple principle, which has its complexities when applied in practice. But it's really the central understanding and assumption of the U.S. Constitution. Most Americans who haven't ever really thought about it are libertarians. The left now are not libertarians because they're into control. They want to design their own perfect society according to their own likes. They no longer believe in freedom of speech and therefore, yeah, the left does not believe you should be able to do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting other people. They want to coerce you to be a good person in their terms, period. Yes, you've said that when you were growing up, it was the conservatives that were the voices of oppression, conformity, and orthodoxy. It was the right that imposed restrictions on liberty. That baton has now passed to the left. How has that transition taken place? Sneakily. I mean, I, I, it, it's a little bizarre. I feel as if I woke up one day and suddenly the left and right had changed places. Freedom of speech used to be a left-wing cause. American Civil Liberties Union would go to bat for Nazis and their right to march down Main Street. I mean, that was, you know, that was always the cliche. That would never happen today. And the ACLU has been completely captured by the woke ideology, and they don't believe in free speech. You couldn't get more ironic than that. But yeah, when I was growing up, uh, the the oppressors were, you know, conservatives. They they wanted you to uh, go to church, and you couldn't take drugs, and uh, you had to be patriotic, and, you know, they didn't, you had to dress in a certain way. It, they were the ones who were bossy. And, and had a very rigid version of what it meant to be an American in my country. And they were big on rectitude, just more broadly. Now the source of rectitude is on the left. And I find that completely bizarre. When I speak to people on this very question, many of them point to the universities as the seed of this change. It is where certain fringe positions have grown from and then they've slowly taken root 
in institution after institution, from the corporates to media to any number of different areas. Do you see the universities in that way or do you put the genesis of this somewhere else? I think it started with my generation. Um, You know, I grew up at the tail end of what we call the 60s, which actually extended into the the 70s politically and culturally. And, you know, a lot of the positions I used to espouse myself when I was much younger have been now taken over by the mainstream, most particularly the hostility to Western civilization. And uh, in my country, it was specifically hostility toward the United States. And we thought that made us special. And when I went abroad, when I was much younger, I was ashamed to be an American. And I thought that that shame kind of opted me out of my nationality. So all the ugly Americans, they were loud and uncouth and fat, and they didn't, they didn't know anything about the places they visited. So if I were critical and I chimed in with foreigners who had a poor opinion of Americans, then I wasn't really one of them anymore. So I know, I know that attitude from the, from the inside. And there were some, you know, I've spent the majority of my adulthood outside the U.S., and at a certain point, I kind of pulled up short and realized, first off, this didn't make me special. This was in the terms of the political group that I then identified with, American liberals. It was trite, and it was conformist, right? And furthermore, it wasn't attractive. And that was the real, that was a real revelation to me because I thought I was, you know, I was living in Belfast. And I thought I was pleasing people by being so super critical of my own country. But no, it's, it's, it's not attractive to try to disavow the people you belong to and the place where you come from. And it didn't get me out of being an American. It was actually typically American at that time. And besides which, I didn't choose where to be born. I wasn't naturalized. I woke up in my crib with American citizenship. There were a lot of worse places to be from. And so I've stopped fighting it. I think that's one reason that I still have an American accent. Whereas I lived in the UK for 35 years, and a lot of people in my position, especially Americans, would have deliberately uh, achieved a British accent by now, because it's perceived as prestigious back in the United States. It isn't, of course. This is another misunderstanding. When Americans who've been living in the UK go back to the, to the US, other Americans hate you to start speaking with a British accent. It's, it's pretentious. But this whole thing of being very hostile to the idea of patriotism, of emphasizing all the sins of the past so that you know you're you're obsessed with slavery and what Americans did to the uh, the Indians and you know all the racial discrimination up until the civil rights movement especially you know this this was something that my generation really clung to and you know it made us feel special it made us feel savvy and that kind of faux self-criticism. It's not real self-criticism because you're not really criticizing yourself at all. You're criticizing other people. But it, 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 came with, it came with status. But 
only within this small group of people. And what distinguishes that kind of guilty, critical attitude toward your own civilization then and now, it was, it was a fringe position when I was a kid. We were a tiny minority, and it didn't really matter what we thought. Now it's mainstream. It, now it's the establishment. Now, weirdly enough, if you want to be anti-establishment, then in the U.S. you're pro-American. <laughs> and it, more broadly, in the West, you believe in Western civilization and you admire its achievements. That is a fringe position now. Yeah, I remember listening to Nick Cave on Unheard, <laughs> and he said something along the lines of, the countercultural position today is to be religious, is to be patriotic, is to believe in the value of Western civilization. And the ultimate irony is that's what makes you a rebel in 2024 as opposed to, you know, 30 or 40 years ago when you were part of the establishment. It's extraordinary how that's happened. And I've never quite heard before the explanation that at least it started from a place of almost intellectual snobbery mm-hmm. uh, as part of a, a fringe group. And so that, that's really interesting. Well, I'm my interested- generation with these left-wing views disproportionately went on to infest, if you will, academia. So people like me who didn't have any kind of revelation in Belfast, they took over all, of, especially the humanities, and that their, this position influenced what they taught. And they created the next generation who also went into the humanities. And, you know, ideologies don't stay the same. And if, you, if, if your position is, starts out as hoping to be revolutionary in some way, then, then if it doesn't just get defeated or become boring as old hat, then it's going to get more extreme. And that's exactly what's happened. It's interesting how you you identified status as being a really important component of this. And and I do sometimes think that these particular positions are status symbols on the left of or the progressive side of politics today. There's a really lovely little line in your collection of essays. It was the left's collective vocabulary functions as a T-shirt. And I think this may perhaps may, may go to this in some way. Can you expand on that for me? Oh, I think one of the things I find most repulsive about the modern day left is their use of language. And they're very proud of their use of language and they're constantly trying to foist new rules and regulations on the way people write and speak. And it's ugly, right? It rapidly becomes trite. So it, it's also strangely lifeless and negative heavily prescriptive so it's not optional you have to you know you're told on as if on on a single day you can no longer refer to the obese it has to be people living with obesity now not only is that not really any more complimentary to people who are fat <laughs> but it's clumsy you know as as a writer also just as a person who wants to be articulate and be able to speak freely and and express things well. I resent these impositions. And I, I have to say I have contempt for people who just pick them all up. 
I mean, these so-called rules that the left hands down, and you know, they they put the university, like Stanford University, put together a hugely long list of expressions and words that are no longer acceptable. But they're 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 not legally binding, and I find it just utterly astonishing that people take this stuff seriously. And I also, I mean, I'm just, I have a, an aversion to conformity across the board. And that's something that my generation started out with in our little rebellious way. And I've clung to that. But that's any conformity, not just the kind of conformity that I rebelled against when I was 15. And I just find the way people obediently pick up these expressions You know, they're in the air and they get the message that now we're not supposed to talk about marginalized group. No, no, we're not supposed to talk about minorities anymore. Now we have to call them people of color. And then then they become marginalized groups as if this was done to them. I mean, and everyone, especially in the media, gets with the program immediately. It's like, don't you have any self-respect? It's pathetic, but the trend just in terms of the use of language is to make it more and more unwieldy, more repetitive, more multisyllabic, and heavy. If you ever read some of this stuff that's written in, in the lingo that uses all of it, it is unreadable. So for me, this is a partly a, an aesthetic issue. Yeah, and I think more than that, or in addition to that, it's euphemistic and deliberately tricky. So it takes, in many respects, what are very dangerous concepts and then cloaks them in words that sound at face value to be positive or to be inoffensive. So the classic Mm -hmm. is, is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Most people don't listen to spectator podcasts and don't read the newspaper every day and don't keep up to date with the culture wars. And if you hear your HR department saying, well, we support diversity, equity, and inclusion without knowing the undertones of those terms, it's very hard probably not to go along with that because you go, I am a good person. I do believe in in helping other people and, and being supportive of other people. So I can see how this stuff does catch on if you don't, and you can, and some people can be hoodwinked into the ideology through the manipulation of language. Well, a lot of the language is loaded. And you pick up also that it it frequently means the opposite of what it seems to mean. So DEI, the E, you know, equity is all about discrimination. It's not about equality. It's about active discrimination against white people and men, right? And anyone who has biologically standard sexual inclinations or... Another loaded word is neurodiversity, right? And that comes with a whole set of assumptions, some of which are highly dubious. And the the point being that being autistic, say, is just as good as not being autistic. And I don't think so. And using a word that, that imposes that kind of neutrality doesn't change reality. You know, if you're a parent who has a severely autistic child, I mean, that's, that is so difficult, often almost incapable of communication, 
incapable of establishing a real emotional relationship with you. It's excruciating. And don't tell me that's this, that's just as good as having a kid who doesn't have that affliction. Of course, even using a word like affliction, I'm sure that's against the law. Well, the almost battleground for this control of language would be, in my view, the trans movement. Mm, uh, absolutely. Not even the most hardcore woke pundit could suggest that there isn't difference between chromosomes, between different people. That is a biological fact. So then it becomes, well, it's the control of what the word woman means. It's a definitional debate. Why should we fight for that definition? Why does it matter? Why does the word woman, why is it important? I mean, we're talking about reality. <laughs> and and I think the trans movement has is the ultimate in a break with what is, in a, in a way that's literally deranged. I mean, that's a good working definition of insanity, is someone who's insane has lost touch with reality. And that's what the trans movement has done. And its success in imposing that denial of one of the most primitive facts about human beings its success is astonishing. I mean, you would think you would never have the National Health Service refusing to use sex-specific words, refusing to say pregnant woman. Their materials are eliminating any reference to women. And uh, it, I, I, it's just like, I don't, I don't know how this was achieved. As far as I can tell, one of the, one of the successes of the trans thing is that so many other civil rights battles had already been won. There wasn't much left. And therefore, everyone piled on to that as the ultimate litmus test as to whether or not, as you put it, you're a good person. But, I mean, I'm horrified linguistically, but I'm also more practically, as so many other, not just feminists, but women have been, by, you know, the the fact that we're now letting convicted rapists into women's prisons. So it's mm. not just a, a linguistics problem. Yes, I agree. I spoke to Brendan O'Neill about this quite recently, and he sees it as a very conscious, deliberate focus for social justice ideology because if you can make people believe this untruth, they will believe anything. It is anything. almost like it is the point where you can completely fundamentally alter what is true and what is is not true. I've got a new book coming out this spring, and it's really all about that. It's called Mania, and I made up my own social hysteria set in the very recent past. And I suppose that somebody wrote a book declaring that we are all equally smart, and any perceived difference is just a processing issue, and cognitive discrimination is the last great civil rights fight. Mm. Um, so you can't call people stupid anymore, nor can you discriminate against them because they don't know anything. <laughs> so you have to hire total morons for anything, including flying airplanes, etc. It's a lot of fun. But it springs from a real concern, which in some ways for me is greater than my concern about any of the individual 
social manias that I have watched roll over the entire Western world and sometimes the entire world since about 2012. There was the trans thing started in 2012. Then we had Me Too and Black Lives Matter and the COVID lockdowns that everyone bought hook, line, and sinker. And now we're into another one over climate change. And it's not just the individual lunacies. It's the phenomenon itself that so many people virtually overnight suddenly are obsessed with the same thing, say all the same things, believe all the same things. And that's even if what those things are were completely contrary to what you believed 10 minutes ago. I mean, I guess the moral of my, my story is just as you put it, people will believe anything. And as a consequence, especially after having gone through COVID and watching Londoners march down the street with their hands up, please don't, don't shoot when you, you don't even have an armed police force in the UK. I mean, after going through this, I suddenly find most of world history understandable. All the things that used to baffle me don't anymore. I find Pol Pot's The Killing Fields perfectly understandable, not shocking in the least. Mao's Cultural Revolution makes total sense to me now. So does World War II. Nazism, I decided somewhere in 2020, uh, I think the UK would take about three weeks to bow down to Hitler. And I, I don't like this understanding of mine, not in the slightest. It's depressing. And it's actually quite frightening because I don't know what's next around the corner. But as a species, we tend to a herd mentality and we now have the technical facility to communicate ideology and fad, faddish obsessions to the entire world in a matter of minutes or hours. And I, you know, I don't think there seem to be any limits to what people would believe or how much they would change or what, what new idea that everyone is supposed to think it's going to come along. I think they will, they will buy into anything. And it's worse than it's ever been because of the internet. The word mania itself is such an apt description for our times. And I want to put mania in a historical context, which you've started to do just there. Some people would argue that we live in unique times because of, say, technology and the ability for it to disseminate a mania more quickly. Some people, like the Andrew Doyles, for example, would say that there are a lot of similarities between today and the Salem witch trials, where people, over a short period of time, lost their collective minds. Is what we are seeing today, the mania of today, unique to our times, or do you see parallels throughout history? How do you reflect on that? Oh, I've, there are lots of parallels throughout history. People have always thought really stupid things. And I guess the revelation I've had in the last decade or so is that we have this conceit that we're modern. And so we don't believe 
anything barbaric or scientifically ludicrous anymore. That's not true. We're the same as we've always been. Not only that, but we are capable of going backwards. Right now we're going backwards. Science is going backwards. It's been infected with so many of these social manias that it's, science itself is becoming anti-science. I mean, in Australia, the whole notion of taking on indigenous myth as part of science is absurd, and it's anti-science. But the ideology is more important than the science, than reality, than becoming a good scientist and discovering reality. Reality is now subject to ideology. And that's going backwards. I mean, that's, that's basically, it's, it's hurling backwards to when the church controlled everything, right? And it was anathema to imagine that the sun didn't revolve around the earth. Yeah, we're going back there. I mean, the whole, yeah, this whole experience has been quite humbling. And it makes me fear for our future. Let's investigate that. My question is, where does this end? Look forward to the future. Does this continue to culturally devolve to a very, very dark place? Or can you see the possibility of a cultural fight back for some of the established older truths that perhaps we once believed in and then because of the manias of our time, we no longer do to the same degree? Well, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball any more than you do, so I have no idea where this is going to go. I have been heartened by the fact that this era, especially in the last few years, uh, has thrown up any number of courageous, intelligent, articulate, sensible people who have really stuck their necks out. And, you know, I it's funny, I... I think it must have been about 2010, I got approached by a newspaper with one of these filler gigs, you know, and they wanted me to write about someone whom I admired, you know, that kind of stock. I couldn't think of anybody, which was really horrifying. And now, 14 years later, I could give you a list of 25 people without even trying. And and that's actually improved my life. I, I hesitate to call it a community. It isn't that exactly, and I hate that word. But I feel that I am in touch with and in league with what my father would call my brethren. My father was a, a minister and seminary president. So, But I like that word for these people. They are my brethren. And... They've often, uh, they've often stood up for sometimes reality, fairness, for getting a grip at some cost to themselves. They've written a lot of good work, which is much more entertaining and daring than the orthodoxy, the, the, the more, the, all the woke stuff. It's, I mean, it's dreary. So, you know, they gave, these people give me hope. In the UK, Matt Goodwin, Eric Kaufman, Toby Young, even someone like Jordan Peterson has played an important part in, uh, 
in the in the, the trans issue in particular. Douglas Murray has been great, and uh, I'm um, I think that these people are getting stronger. I think we are getting stronger. That doesn't change the fact that the lunatics have taken over all of our major institutions and they have high paying jobs and they don't want to resign. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be very hard to get rid of. That whole DEI industry is quite a little moneymaker. And, um, you know, I've been heartened to see certain Republican dominated states refusing to fund DEI programs in state universities. I think that's brilliant. You know, that's never going to happen in blue states, however. Mm. So it's, it's a long fight, but I am encouraged by my contemporaries. And I'm also hopeful about younger people who they get a bad rap with people like me which isn't always fair, at a certain point, surely this way of thinking is what their parents are into, and it's, and the, and, and it's a big turnoff. I mean, after all, it is very dreary. It is atmospheric, you know, it's touch and feel is oppressive. It's not fun. It's, it's anti-fun. It's humorless, and it has, it therefore, has no natural appeal to young people, proper young people, who are their physical prime, they have lots of sex drive, or they should, <laughs> and are naturally mischievous and mistrustful of their parents' shibboleths and Surely that kicks in eventually, right? I'm not sure because you said that this is something which shouldn't appeal to young people. I agree. It's an oppressive, authoritarian, headmasterly ideology that says you can and can't do certain things, which kids have gone against. And yet very recently, the younger generation has been some of the most enthusiastic advocates for this new way of thinking, which I find difficult to fully comprehend. And the only thing I can come up with is going back to that branding point to say that the, they have been taken in by the branding, which is around inclusivity and positivity and feelings without looking at the layer underneath, which says that this is actually in many respects, the opposite of those things. I can't come up with any other reason as to why this would capture so many young people. Well, I think that um, especially a few years ago, Younger people got the message that this was a movement to take over. In other words, it was a power move to kick the kick the old has been writers like me out of the catalog. Then they could step into the catalog, and that's that's been the case across the board. The message was, you know, we're catching you out with all these barbaric misuses of language and you don't have the right opinions. We're going to get you fired. That's what cancel culture, that's part of what cancel culture is motivated by. Part of it, of course, is just, it's a sport, just getting people fired. But writ large, that's getting rid of a generation and then you get to step into their shoes. So mm. I think that was part of the incentive. 
Well, this is a nice segue into identity politics, specifically within fiction. So in 2006, you said fiction writers have or should have a vested interest in protecting everyone's rights to offend others because if hurting someone else's feelings, even accidentally, is sufficient justification for muzzling, there will always be someone out there who is miffed by what you say and freedom of speech is dead. Fast forward in 2016 at a now infamous address in Brisbane, you said with the rise of identity politics, that battle is a battle that fiction writers were losing. Let's fast forward again eight years to 2024. What's the state of that battle in fiction today? We're still losing, but I'm still standing. So, you know, I think publishing has really suffered uh, from being taken over by women. And women are particularly susceptible to woke ideology because they like to think of themselves as so caring and empathetic. I think they're a little more, I mean, this is obviously to overgeneralize, and I'm suspicious of any generalization that I opt myself out of. But I think women tend to be more communitarian. They don't like conflict. And I think they're a little more driven to please. That's the the worst of it. And in publishing, this has meant susceptibility, especially post-George Floyd, to all of this pandering. And so, and it's overt racial pandering. And I mean, uh, it hasn't made them money. Uh, it's interesting in its very uh, economic self-destruction. They've lost a lot of a lot of money on splashing out huge advances for minority writers just because they're minorities and not because they wrote a great book. And I shouldn't have to say this. Nothing against minority writers, but all I care about is is the good books. Okay, I don't care who you are. In fact. I generally am not interested in authors, who they are, their biographies. I never read biographies of writers. I don't care what your story was. I don't care what your relationship with your mother was. I just want to read the book. And and I will judge it on its own terms. So this whole thing of bringing DEI to publishing, I think, has been quietly catastrophic. And I'm interested in how long it will take for them to start pulling back on it. I noticed that the woke obsessions in filmmaking are starting to subside, and that's because it involves too much money. Whereas you can afford to squander advances in publishing because in the big scheme of things, it's kind of chump change. So that the bigger companies that own these publishing companies are not going to get up in arms that you just lost what in your tiny terms is a lot of money, but it's just in worldly terms, it doesn't actually matter. I mean, ultimately publishing right now, culturally even, doesn't especially matter. Novelists have suffered a subtle cultural demotion and are mostly regarded as useful if they generate Netflix series. So it's a very small world, and the, and the people who read literary fiction, for example, there are not very many of them. It's a small audience in comparison to the TV audience. So it's to a degree, it's a tempest in a teacup. It's obviously a tempest that rains on my personal head. I can see why 
people outside of publishing or people who are not big readers wouldn't especially give a toss. Even in tiny publishing, there have been some occurrences that give me hope. I mean, there have been more than one publishing company to come along and scoop up unpopular writers, people with, or, you know, perish the thought, straight white male writers, and they're doing very well. Even in, uh, in nonfiction, there's money in anti-woke. I think there's a lot more money in anti-woke than in woke. I mean, yes, there was that wave of books that sold absurd quantities because people wanted to put, you know, Ibram X candy on their coffee table as a badge of, of honor and goodness. But I think the money right now is in people who are pushing back against this stuff. I mean, think more broadly, the, you know, what we were talking about earlier, it's, it's cool to be conservative. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the conservatives who are risky and edgy. They're the only people who are funny in comedy. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So, and, and, I, and I think promising. Yeah. Look, it's, it is one of the great paradoxes of our time that it is patently obvious that a lot of these sorts of, say, woke marketing campaigns, for example, are counterproductive. People don't like them. The Bud Light phenomena is an example of just the backlash that will come if you do this. And yet businesses still keep doing it. It still keeps happening. Marketing departments still do this stuff, even though facts are staring them in the face that it is not popular with a mainstream audience. It's difficult to fully get your head around. Can I reverse back to the start of your answer, looking at the, the innate differences between men and women? Because it brought to mind a really interesting graph that I saw, I think, in The Economist uh, in the last maybe few weeks. And it said that across a lot of different countries that they surveyed, the ideological differences between men and women had actually been increasing rapidly yes. in the last 15 to 20 years. I think kind of there was one which was Korea and Korea. I think at the start of 2000, I think there was more men that were voting for the equivalent of their Democrat party or their Labor party, and then that's just completely inverted dramatically over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Similar in the US, women have got more liberal, men have got more conservative. That same phenomena has played out pretty much everywhere. So everything you said around the differences between men and women, I think there are really strong biological, cultural, Darwinian almost reasons for those differences. But it seems like those differences in terms of ideology are getting more pronounced. Why do you think why do you think that that change is actually getting more exaggerated over the last little period? Well certainly uh, in the United States, Trump is an ingredient here. I think that's one of the big dividers between men and women is Trump's support. It's not all male by any means. But there are a lot more male Trump supporters than female ones. You know, I guess it's still, you know, a lot of the same explanations, the desire to please, the susceptibility to conformity, the desire to be considered a nice person. You know, funnily enough, I've never especially been consumed with being considered a nice person, certainly not with being a good person. I care about being regarded as good at what I do. I want to write good books, but I don't want to write virtuous books. I don't understand that whole impulse. In some ways, I, I mean, I grew up with a, in a household where the dominant ethos was altruistic, but I didn't buy it. And it really came down to the fact that my father had a big ego on him and wanted to be well-regarded. 
So I saw the dissonance between being good and wanting to seem good. Mm. So I've always been suspicious of that. But most women just take it on face value. They want to be seen as good people. It's not an ambition I share. And that's, you know, that's the whole line with the woke thing is that this this has to do with virtue. This is how you prove that you're a good person. And they seem to buy it. And it's it's that dominant desire to please. Mm. It's being more oriented toward what other people think of you. Mm. I don't say that proudly as a fellow female. And I think maybe men are a little more rebellious. Besides, they're being shafted like crazy. And People don't like being shafted. They're being deliberately and conspicuously discriminated against in education, in hiring, in everything, as well as in the culture. I mean, uh, Jesus, you look at all the university presidents in the Ivy League, all following the women. Yes. There is one group or demographic in America where life expectancy has been falling over the last decade, and that is non-college educated white men. Now, when you think about that startling statistic, you can hate Trump. That's completely fine to hate Trump. That's a valid, as in one can hate Trump. That's a valid position. But the people that quite frustrate me are the people who don't try and understand the underlying reasons for why someone like Trump can be popular with that demographic of largely men. There are very clear underlying social reasons as to why that's the case, but it is easier for a lot of people just to call that group dumb, ignorant, redneck, racist hicks. Same thing happened in, in Brexit. As opposed to understanding the underlying reasons for these types of protest votes, there are a lot of people who find it more comfortable to dismiss it out of hand, and that does frustrate me. There are a lot of pieces written by Democrats in the United States trying to explain Trump. And it's hardly ever done with good faith. You rarely see an effort to identify with these people and understand what might be motivating them. It's always skewed so that they seem like deplorables. It's almost as if it's too frightening to genuinely understand what the appeal is. I'm not a Trump supporter either, I might clarify. And There are aspects of him which I am genuinely baffled about why that would be appealing. I find him tedious. Uh, He speaks badly. He's crude in presentation. I don't mean that in a moral way. But there's just a kind of roughness to him and ugliness. He's impolite in a way that a lot of his supporters in their normal social life would find unacceptable. You know, rude abusive. So I don't pretend to totally understand. It's not that I'm trying not to. And I, I, I honestly think that Democrats try not to. We are running short of time, Lionel, but indulge me one last question. You wrote in a Guardian article, and as an aside, it's a testament to your neurodiversity to use the parlance of our times <laughs> that that you can be written, you can be covered in both the uh, Wall Street Journal and, and the Guardian and the Spectator. It's probably increasingly rare. But in that article, you said, in the US, we're sufficiently consumed by the concept of happiness that the right to pursue it is enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. But what is happiness? Lionel Shriver, what is happiness to you today? 
Well, in that essay, I put forward the notion that happiness is not a point, but a trajectory. It is a direction. It is proceeding with purpose. And generally, if you are truly happy, you're not thinking about whether or not you're happy. You're too absorbed in what you're doing. And I think misconceiving of happiness as some kind of Valhalla that you arrive at is one of the things that makes people unhappy. That they don't understand it's not something that you achieve. It's not static. You never achieve it. It is the process of achieving something that makes me happy. And I don't think that I'm alone in that. It's one of the reasons I like writing books because they take a long time and I always have something to think about, something to do, uh, something to achieve, both in the short and the long term. And often that process entails a certain amount of suffering, but that's okay. I think a a good parallel also is uh, raising children. Uh, which I have not done, and I feel a little guilty about that. But it involves a lot of sacrifice and tedium and sometimes outright boredom, having to deal with screaming kids and sticky hands and you, you name it. But at the end of the day, if and it is a risk, it, you don't know how it's going to turn out, but an awful lot of parents will tell you that it's the most satisfying and meaningful thing that they did in their entire lives. And I, I think that's happiness. And I think one of the reasons that we have a low birth rate across the West is that we misconceive what happiness is. So that we think, oh, you know, I don't want to do all that. That sounds like a big pain in the bum. I'd rather go on holiday. It's not understanding that deep happiness has to do with undertaking something hard. Beautifully put. Lionel, there have been very few writers who have been able to straddle fiction and nonfiction with the success that you have, probably even fewer who have been able to do it whilst maintaining their integrity in the way that you have. We're all looking forward to your next book, which I believe you said is coming out in the spring. April. April. Can't wait for that one and would love to chat to you about it when it comes out. Thank you so much for both your thinking, your continued fight for what you believe is right, and uh, and thank you more immediately for coming on Australiana. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.